there are portions of the Bible that get treated kind of like a fortune cookie. Stop me if you've heard this one. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's an encouraging verse. Kind of, right? You just take that one verse as it, as it, as it sits, just by itself. Very encouraging, right? Great, God has a plan for me. A hope and a future, that, that all sounds wonderful. Until you look at the verse right before it. Because in the verse right before it, God says, when 70 years are completed for in Babylon, he's telling the nation of Israel, you gotta cool your heels in captivity. You gotta be slaves in Babylon for 70 years. And then at the end of that 70 years, then, then things will start to get better. Then you will have a hope and a future in me. So there's a danger in picking a particular verse or a phrase and taking it out of its context and using it just inappropriately like that. Our passage this morning has one of those phrases. Um, But in order to kind of counter that, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been reading this entire sermon uh, by Jesus every single week to start off with. Because there is something that is, that is gained in reading these words in their right context. And to just simply look at a verse or two, you lose something. You lose something taking them out of that context. So we're going to be in Luke 6, and we're going to read the entirety of uh, Luke 6, starting in verse 20, and all the way through verse 49. So this is Luke, starting in Luke 6, starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of, the e- out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground, without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So we are going to be looking specifically, or rather last week we looked specifically uh, at, at the passage that ended in verses 35 and 36. And we, we saw how verses 35 and 36 provided a summary for that, that entire section, uh, where it says, but love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And we talked about how we were God's enemies, in effect. He had created us to be in relationship with him, to love him, and to find all that we needed in that relationship. And he fulfilled in that relationship everything that we needed. But we were rebels and traitors against him. We sought meaning and purpose in something other than him. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, that relationship was broken. And we were cut off from the one thing that we truly need. That is our Heavenly Father. But while we were still sinners, while we were still actively in rebellion against Him, He loved us. And the Father sent the Son to live that perfect life that we should have lived but didn't and to die the death that we deserved for our treason. But he didn't stay dead. He defeated death so that we could have that broken relationship with our Father healed and to, and to be able to live together with him forever 
in the light of his glory. So in his life and his resurrection, he began undoing all of the hurt and the evil and the damage that had been done through our rebellion. We were the evil, ungrateful people that he talked about in in verse 35. The evil, ungrateful people that he loved. He loved us by giving of himself, even to the point of giving his life on the cross. And when we are given such love and such grace and such mercy, we have to show the same to the people around us, not as an obligation, but as the, as the natural consequence. Because if we have understood the greatness of God's love for us, we cannot not love him back. We cannot not love others. It's simply not possible. And so we show that love, even to those people that would seek to hurt us, and to harm us, because that is what God in Christ has done for us. And one of the ways that we talked about specifically that we show this love for others is that we give. We give those things that we have been temporarily entrusted with um, in stewardship, right? In, in accordance with his wishes and with his nature. And we are freed to do this by the fact that, that, that everything that we have been given in this life is ultimately temporary. And nothing that we have is really ours at all. The things that we have, the money that we have, our bodies, our time, our influence. When Christ redeemed us, he bought us. He bought everything about us. He owns us and everything that we think we have. And he frees us to be a giver be givers, because he is a giver, and so we are to be givers in imitation of him, extravagant givers, generous givers. The extravagance of our generosity to the people around us should reflect the extravagance of God's generosity to us, and so we're called to give of our money, our time, our privacy, our autonomy. We're to give up all of these things to be able to better love our neighbor and to better teach them about the great love of God. And so that leads in this morning to verse 37, the first two words of which are often treated as one of those nice Bible fortune cookies. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So the standard that you use for others will be the standard that is used for you. What's the standard? What's the measure that we're supposed to be using? We saw that in, in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Love your enemies. Give to them. Be merciful. Because that was how God treated us, right? He didn't demand payment. He didn't demand justice for the wrong that we had done against him. But he, but he showed us this great mercy and this great grace. And that is the measure that he has used towards us. And so that is the measure that we are called to use towards others. And if we use a measure... We use a standard of judgment and condemnation. 
it doesn't go well for us. Because if we look at somebody and the choices that they have made, we can be tempted to judge them, to condemn them as not being worthy of our love, not being worthy of our respect. But just because somebody is rude, just because somebody is distasteful, just because they make terrible choices, just because they're actively trying to hurt you does not mean that you get to sit in judgment on them and judge them as being unworthy of your love or God's love. And if we do that, if we do that, if we sit in judgment over the people around us, that's a sign for us that we haven't really understood what God's love means for us. We have not understood how God has loved us. And so if we're using that measure, if we're using that standard, if we're only really loving those people who have earned it or those people that we judge to be worthy of it, if we're using that standard for others, that's the standard that it says here that we're asking God to use for us. When we do that, when we use that sort of self-righteous judgment and condemnation as the standards that we use for others, we are rejecting God's mercy towards us. We are rejecting his grace towards us. One of the parables that I've come back to a few different times over the last few years is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. If you want to turn there, um, you can follow along. Uh, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, him being Jesus. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's billions of dollars. It's like $6 billion. Um, 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Billions of dollars of debt erased, forgiven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a few thousand dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the first servant was forgiven $6 billion. 
And he refuses to forgive the debt that was owed to him by somebody else of a few thousand dollars. He had been extended mercy, but he refused to extend mercy to others. He had been extended forgiveness for billions that he owed, but he demanded justice for the thousands that he was owed. But the point of the parable is that if you are given mercy, you must extend mercy. If you are given forgiveness, you must extend forgiveness. God has mercy on us. He loves us. But if we understand that love correctly, we we have no option but to extend that love to the people around us. The measure that we use is the measure that will be used for us. Now, there is a question here. If we are not to judge, who is it who does judge? It says in Hebrews 10, um, speaking about the, the time of Israel in the Old Testament, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There is judgment for wrongdoing. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a judge who sits over the world in judgment. And it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. But as Paul said in in Romans 14, starting in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, do not let us pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. God sits in judgment. We do not. Jesus continues in in verse 39. He says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's a a vivid picture there. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Picturing two people who can't see, one trying to lead the other. And it's ridiculous, right? We recognize the, the foolishness in that, because the first person can't possibly see where to go, because he's blind. They need somebody who can see to lead them. And so a disciple will be like his teacher. If you have a blind man leading a blind man, they're not going to get anywhere. The disciple is going to be just as lost as the teacher in that respect. Now, who is it that we are supposed to follow as teachers? First of all, I want to dispel any sort of notion. It's not me, right? I'll just say, do not follow me. Who should we be following? 
If you remember back a few months when Jesus began his public ministry, he stood up and he read from, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ is the one that we should be following. He is the one who takes away blindness. He is the light of the world. In the beginning, it says in John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the one for us to follow. Not me, not your parents, not some internet teacher, Christ and Christ alone is the one that we are supposed to be following. And if, if we get that wrong and we follow after somebody else, that's the blind leading the blind. It says in Proverbs 14 that there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. A blind man leading a blind man will only make them both fall into a pit. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its, way is the way, but its end is the way to death. So who are we to follow? We are to follow Jesus. Not a person, not a church, not a denomination, not a set of ideals, not a philosophy, not a self-help curriculum, but it is Christ and Christ alone that we are to be following. Now, There is, there is a sense, um, or there is a truth, rather, that God is also working in us and on us. He is working out our, our sanctification. As time goes on, we are becoming less and less like the person that we once were, and more and more like Christ. And at the return of Christ, at that second coming, that work will be complete. We will be like our teacher, as it says in, in Luke 6. And today, in the here and the now, that work is ongoing. We are being prepared for that day. It says in Romans 8 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So as believers, 
this time on this earth is not, is not just for our enjoyment. And it's not some sort of a punishment. But the purpose of our time in this life, the joy and the suffering alike, is to make us more like Jesus. We are going to be shaped. We are going to be conformed to the image. We're going to be shaped and molded into the pattern that is Christ. That is the purpose of this time, to shape us, to mold us, to carve us, to cut us, so that we look less and less like our old selves and more and more like him, so that we will be like our teacher when we are fully trained. I've said before that, in general, God uses three means to accomplish this work. He uses his word, uses his spirit, and he uses his people. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why we do this. That's why I am here doing this bringing the riches of God's word before you to help you to understand and to love God and to be shaped by the word of God so that you may become more like the son of God. He uses his word to accomplish that work in us. He uses his spirit to accomplish that work in us. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the point in the, in the year where we remember that first Pentecost when The Father sent the Spirit, the Helper, our Helper, our Guide, to be with us, to guide us, to teach us. And when he comes, Jesus said in in John 16, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if we are willing to listen, to give ear to the Spirit, if we are willing to listen to it, we will see, we will see those places where we are pursuing sin. Those places where we are placing things other than God as first and foremost in our lives. So he uses his word, he uses his spirit, and he uses his people. Now this last one is a little different, right? Because the word of God is infallible. This is utterly and completely and always true. The Spirit of God, also infallible. God's people, not so much. I don't know if you've known us for very long, but we're, we don't always get it quite right. And so that's, where, that's what Jesus is speaking to in the, in the parable that, um, or, in, or in this next section of the parable that he, uh, that he gives. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your own eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So God uses his people to accomplish his work in us. And that's a blessing. That's a privilege to be able to be a part of that. We have a role to play in helping one another to follow Jesus. But we've got to get our own hearts right first. Right? Our hearts might, must be rooted or in the right place. They must be rooted in compassion and mercy and love. 
And we must first be dealing with our own issues before we're ready to be used by God to help the people around us. And the problem is we don't always see with clarity that log that's in our own eye because it it distorts our vision. It distorts the way that we see the world. And it's very easy for us to end up with a log of pride stuck in our own eye that we just don't see. We're not even aware that it's there. That log of self-righteousness, that plank of a desire to control the people around us. And the problem with all of those things is that they are rooted in who we are. They're rooted in what we think. They're rooted in us and not in who Jesus is. And so if we are trying to take out that speck, to kind of combine these these visual pictures, if we're trying to take out that speck from our brother's eye, while we've got that plank still stuck in our own, we're the blind leading the blind. There is a way that seems right to a man, and its way ends in death. That's where we're going to end up. But when we can put these things aside, when we can put aside our, our pride, we, when we can put aside our self-righteousness, God can help us, or God can use us to help our brothers and sisters follow him more closely, to see his light more clearly. See, the goal in doing this is not to, to fix people. That's, that's, not what I'm, that's not what any of us are supposed to be trying to do. We can't set out to fix people, but rather our goal is to be used by God as he works in their lives. Our goal is not to make the people around us more like us, but our goal is to help them become more like Jesus. It's not about moral superiority, but it's about love and compassion. It's about the mercy and the grace that God has shown us. And so we show it to others. It's not about earning his love, but it's about seeing and understanding the one who has earned for us and following him more closely. The goal is to love the people around us, to love them by pointing them more clearly to their savior. And we will know how to do this better. We will understand how to do this better if we can see Jesus in ourselves more clearly. The more clearly we see, the more clearly we understand God's love for us, the easier it is to help the people around us see that. And so we need to be doing the work in our hearts. We need to be removing the planks from our own eyes as the best way to fulfill that command. Now, there's two, there's two ditches here. Right? I like this metaphor of ditches. You've got a road and you've got a ditch on either side. On the one, there is a ditch where you just say, listen, I'm not going to get involved. Bible says judge not. I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to keep my mouth closed and not say anything at all. Well, that's a problem. That's forsaking the responsibility that we have to one another and to the people around us to help them to follow Jesus better. And so if somebody is going completely off the rails, it is unloving 
it is unloving for us to stand there and say, well, I'm just not going to judge. That's between them and God. I just don't want to get involved. That's wrong. That's one ditch. The other ditch takes it to the other extreme and says, I am the ultimate arbiter of all that is right and wrong. And if you do not conform to what I say, then there's no way God could possibly love you. There's no way God could possibly accept you. There's no way you're a Christian if you don't wear a tie to church. Got to check real quick and make sure nobody's wearing a tie. Uh, Right? There are people who would say that. There's no way that you actually love God if you don't wear a tie to church. It's a foolish example, but you understand what I'm saying. People who sit in judgment and say, I am the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. But instead, what we are called to do as believers is to lovingly and to humbly help one another follow after Jesus in every single area of our lives. God has loved us, and so we love him. We reflect that love back to him, and we show that love to the people around us. And the way that we best show our love for the people around us, for our brothers and sisters, and for the entire world, is to continually be pointing them to Jesus. He is the hope that we have. He is our guide. He is our teacher. He is our light. Now, this is... This puts some requirements on our lives. To point people to Jesus like this requires us to live our lives according to a particular pattern. And we see that pattern lived out in how Jesus lived with his disciples. It requires proximity, right? relational proximity. Jesus and his disciples went everywhere together for three years. There was nothing that they didn't do together during that time. It requires vulnerability. Jesus wept in front of his disciples. He struggled. If you remember the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, in such distress, in such distress that he was sweating blood. Though that vulnerability was, um, was part of how Jesus built up that relationship with them. It also requires humility. If you remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet, there are few things that are more humbling, especially in the culture that Jesus lived in, but even today, there are few things that require more humility than to wash the feet of another person. To live our lives in this way requires us to live in relational proximity to one another. We've got to be close. It requires vulnerability. We've got to be open. It requires humility. We've got to not value ourselves. And it requires love. That is what drives all of this. And not a general love, but a specific love. A love that loves individual people and not just a group. See, there is a, um, there is a temptation for us to love people in theory or to love a group of people. 
And that's easier. But it misses the mark. It's easier to say, well, I love my church. I think you should. I think that y'all are great people. You should love your church. However, it becomes a little bit more difficult when I've got to love Gary. And I've got to love Joyce. Okay, you're a lot easier to love than Gary is, but... (laughs) It becomes a lot more difficult when we're talking about individuals because individuals have quirks. Individuals have proclivities. Individuals can be annoying. Individuals can be aggravating in a way that groups of people can't be. Individuals can frustrate us and disappoint us in a way that that groups of people can't really. But it's in those individual people It's in each one of you that we see the image of God. The image of God was not implanted on mankind as a whole, but on each and every one of us. And so, as individual image bearers of God, we are called to love the individual people around us, regardless of the cost. And there are times when loving individual people, it might get a little smelly. Because there are people, there are individuals who can get a little smelly. And that's, that's okay. That's how we love them. It might get a little uncomfortable. Because sometimes people are just really awkward and weird and it's uncomfortable. But we're called to love them. We might get dirty. We might catch fleas or lice. But that is what it looks like to love them. It might be boring to love them. On the other hand, it might be dangerous to love them. A little too not boring. (laughs) They may reject us. They may use us. But in loving these individual people well, in loving them the way that Christ has loved us, we are teaching them about the love of God. We are showing them the steadfast love of God for his people. Now this sort of, this sort of love, maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but this sort of love is kind of rare for us to find just naturally occurring in our lives. Um, I know of a few people that it looks like it might come naturally to them, but for the most part, I'll own it. This love does not come naturally to me. This is a skill that we develop. It's a muscle that we build over time. And so if we don't just find it growing naturally in our lives, we have to cultivate it. We have to make an intentional effort to grow that love of others that we are being called to. It might be awkward, might be time-consuming, it might be uncomfortable. We'll probably have to give up some of our privacy, some of our autonomy. We might have to give people attention that we wouldn't otherwise. We will have to live in relational proximity to them. We'll have to be vulnerable to them. We'll have to be humble before them. 
And I hope, I hope that you have these sorts of relationships with other believers. I, I, I pray that you do. And if you, if you do, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations. But if you don't, if you don't, if you look at this sort of love, at these sorts of relationships, you say, I, I don't have that. I want that. Uh, as a church, we, we offer an ongoing opportunity to, to practice these things, to grow in this love for other people, to develop these sorts of relationships. Uh, and we see that in the community groups that, that we've been working on for the past few months. This time to be relationally close to one another, to be in proximity to one another, to be vulnerable to one another, to share with one another. These are the good things that are going on in my life. And these are the hard things. And I see God working here and I struggle to see him working here, to share the triumphs and the failures, to show humility, to listen and learn from others. Because friends, this is... This is one of the most difficult challenges that I think we will see in the coming years, centuries even, maybe, is it will become more and uh, it, it'll become easier as time goes on to just simply ignore the people around us. Not to hate them, but to just be indifferent to them. I'm okay. People that I care about are okay, and everybody else, I'm not really worried about them. But to take that, to take that attitude, to take that track, is to ignore, is to ignore and ultimately to reject the love that God has shown us. God has loved us wildly. He has loved us extravagantly. He has loved us at great cost to himself. And it's that love, it's that mercy, it's that forgiveness that we are called to seek and to pursue. To pursue that love for the people around us. And that's costly. That is costly. But it's worth it. And it's worth it. Because God has said, it's worth it. His love for us is what we are reflecting to the people around us. His love for us came at great cost. and He knew what that cost was. And he looked at the cost. And he looked at what was gained and he said, it's worth it. So I would, I would encourage you. Next Sunday, 9.30, right there. After church. Come. Join us. Walk alongside of us. Walk alongside one another together as we follow after Jesus. Not because we're perfect, not because we've got it all together, but because we love him and we are working hard at trying to love one another the way that he has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great love and mercy that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. And Father, we confess that we have not always shown the same love 
to the people around us. We have not shown that love to our children. We have not shown that love to our spouses. We have not shown that love to our coworkers. We have not shown that love to the, to the people that we encounter in our everyday lives. Father, we, we want to do better. We want to love the people around us more fully. So we ask your forgiveness. Father, we also ask that, that you would be empowering us, that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the conviction, that you would give us the patience that we need to learn how to love the people around us well so that we, so that by that love, people would come to understand your love for us more fully, more completely, so that in everything we would be pointing to you as the fulfillment of every one of our hopes, every one of our dreams, every one of our aspirations, so that we would point to you as our only hope in life and in death. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.